Hello and welcome to the China Research Group weekly podcast. I'm Julia Pamely and I'm Chris Cash. Every week we will be bringing you insight from experts and fresh analysis on the stories driving the UK's relationship with China and China's relationship with the world. For this episode of the China Research Group Talks on China podcast, I'm really excited to have Mary Hoy join me from Hong Kong. Mary is a reporter for Quartz where she covers geopolitics tech and business. Prior to this, she was a freelance journalist writer with a focus on a range of urban and social economic issues. Last year, Mary joined the BBC's briefing room to discuss Hong Kong's controversial national security law and the past, present and future of Beijing's crackdown on Hong Kong. And the plan today is to get stuck into all things Hong Kong. Mary, it's great to chat again. Uh, first of all, how are you? I can imagine it's been a tumultuous couple of months or even a couple of years, perhaps. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. And it's definitely been quite tumultuous. That's, uh, I think that's the word for it. Um, yeah, things are happening very, very quickly. Um, but at the same time, of course, with COVID all around the world, it also feels like time has stopped a little bit. So it's been a bit strange to feel the pace of change so quickly in Hong Kong at the same time, deal with this time warp of COVID and the pandemic. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get into sort of all of this stuff um, on the podcast today, but but let's talk a, a little bit in more depth about the, the this terrible COVID explosion in Hong Kong over the, the past couple of months. And I think after recording only 213 deaths between January 2020 and January 2022, the recent Omicron outbreak resulted in, in more than 4,500 deaths. Um, and I think we all around the world saw the sort of distressing images of hospitals being overwhelmed and patients are unable to access sort of basic care. So, so why do you think did, did Hong Kong go from this pandemic success story to perhaps as a sort of laggard? Yeah, it really was a kind of a slow motion train crash that we had, you know, upwards of a year um, of forewarning that could have been entirely prevented if not mitigated. And um, those things, measures that would have mitigated and prevented these thefts uh, weren't taken. And so we have probably, we will have uh, 9,000, 10,000 beds per the modeling um, that's been done out of the University of Hong Kong here. So to the question of, you know, how did it get so bad? What happened? I think the first question to maybe ask is, you know, would Hong Kong have fared better in the pandemic uh, were it not for the authoritarian turn that began in June 2020, that's kind of the, the overarching backdrop that we have to understand um, everything, the context in which we have to understand everything. Um, and of course, you know, Hong Kong, Hong Kong has had up with SARS um, back in 2003, and there is a general acceptance of um, universal masking, um, both indoors and outdoors. So I think that you know, for the first uh, year and a half, two years did really help with uh, the public health measures and, and people initially just uh, publicly um, reacting quite strongly to um, having to pull back with social activities, for example, and taking care. I think complacency set in, to be honest, um, is one factor. And that's coupled with this dynamic of public messaging, government messaging, that really just focused on zero COVID, that the major risk was COVID coming in across the borders. And that's as long as we kept it out, it would be safe. And of course, that's only part of the equation. The other equation, be, the other part of the equation being having to vaccinate people and especially the most uh, vulnerable, the elderly. And that wasn't done. And 
you can imagine when there's no COVID around in, in Hong Kong, uh, and when we had months of zero cases, um, people, especially the elderly, would have been weighing the risks, um, the pros and cons in their minds of, well, if there are no cases, then why should I take the risk of getting vaccinated, um, you know, at the risk of, say, having bad side effects. I think that um, particular narrative was also played up quite a lot, this fear of side effects, severe side effects, even death from from um, from vaccinations. And so so all these factors have yeah, come together to create this um, tragic outcome that we're seeing right now. Um, and of course, it's really impossible to know whether we would have done better had it not uh, been for the crackdown um, and the national security law era that we're now in. But I think what we do know is that the current political landscape has not helped Hong Kong's anti-pandemic cause. Yeah, I mean, again, there's loads to unpack um, in there. And the, the kind of lack of immunity point seems to be one that's widely discussed. I think it's around, or at least it was around, I think, 35, 36% of, of the elderly in Hong Kong have, have received two vaccine shots. And you mentioned that low natural immunization as well and perhaps sort yeah. of stigma around testing as has sort of been seen in, in mainland China as well I think but to get a bit more into the, the political side of it uh, Tim- Timothy McLaughlin in the Atlantic wrote a, a sort of real um, in-depth expose of this a, a couple of weeks ago and, and he stated that the city clings to measures not based on on sound science um, and which experts have, have largely dismissed as, as performative. So, so how do you do you weigh up this sort of distrust in government that has um, lingered over the, the last couple of years as being a, a sort of major contributing factor, which um, McLaughlin again mentions in this article? For sure. I think that's a really important factor to keep in mind and something that's really played a key role in um leading us to where we are now with the pandemic in Hong Kong. And in fact, a high court judge just last week, uh, last month, uh, sorry, um, in, in his ruling, uh, Russell Coleman is his name, and in, in this ruling upholding the legality of Hong Kong's um, Hong Kong government's uh, vaccine pass scheme, he had a pretty scathing critique in his um, judgment of the Hong Kong government's uh, pandemic response. And if you don't mind, I'll just read out a couple of lines of it because it's just so concise and, and to the point. So he says, quote, it's been lacking in logic or common sense, riddled with inconsistencies, short on empathy and human understanding, detached from local personal and business realities, focused on distractions, hence being reactive to what seems urgent at the expense of being proactive to what is important. And it goes on. Um, but you get the get the idea. And he also makes the point that there, there, there was just no long-term strategy. Um, Hong Kong government was um, just really stuck with the, the zero COVID idea. And um, and so they couldn't really plan around um, to, to, to come up with an exit plan out of it, even though public health experts from last summer onwards were saying, yeah, zero COVID is fine for now, but you'll really need an exit plan. And, and of course, we didn't have one. And um, we now have, um, have thousands of vets. Yeah, I mean, I think everywhere around the world, in, including here, sort of had, had their own problems um, and, you know, teething problems with, with these sort of newly introduced measures with COVID. But it does seem, you know, two years down the line, there's been ample time to, to prepare. And the, the sort of role and influence of Beijing, which, again, you, you touched upon in your, your opening remarks. So uh, Beijing's contribution to, to Hong Kong's COVID response, I guess. Uh, and mainland China is now, of course, um, dealing with its own COVID outbreak that is sort mm-hmm. of raising serious questions over the, the zero COVID approach um, in its entirety. And again, there was a Guardian article last week, I think, written by a reporter for, for Hong Kong Free, Free Press on how COVID has, has helped China tighten its, its grip over Hong Kong. 
Um, and we've seen measures such as Hong Kong announcing that it will invoke an emergency ordinance um, with patients being sort of tended to by mainland Chinese and doctors, construction of emergency hospitals, even sort of traditional Chinese medicine being promoted as, mm-hmm. a, as a cure for COVID, which has been warned against by some other countries. So how has this assistance from mainland China been received in Hong Kong? Um, and do you think there'll sort of be lasting impacts of this? Well, yeah, I think in the first order, uh, you know, this kind of political, the, the political officials here and authorities here, they're you know, subservient to Beijing, for lack of a better word, leads to what I see as misplaced accountability. So they're not accountable to the Hong Kong citizens. And it also misaligns their incentives in that they want to take actions that please Beijing, their bosses up in China, uh, mainland China, and, and, and not actually do things that are scientifically sound and that would actually um, be better for the pandemic outcome here. And so we see, for example, this adherence to zero COVID, as I was, I've mentioned, it's almost a loyalty test, right, to have to stick with um, zero COVID and, and not waver from that because saying let's live with COVID means you're influenced by the West and you're about to lie flat and not do anything. And so that that's one instance. And another is this push for uh, a universal mass testing where uh, the Hong Kong government for weeks where it's going back and forth between, oh, we have to test um, all 7.4 million people of Hong Kong three times over the course of X many days. And there was just a lot of rumor mill um, kind of public message, public health messaging by leaks to the press. And there was just a lot of confusion going around. And I think part of it was that there were some pro-Beijing legislators who wanted to push for universal mass testing as a display of their zeal and loyalty. And of course, um, I think last week, Carrie Lam came out to say, oh, well, I think some legislators uh, overdid it. And so now you see the backlash. And I think this kind of infighting is quite um, is quite illustrative of the tensions and the misaligned incentives and accountability. And, and it's quite, I suppose, characteristic of um, authoritarian regimes like the one uh, we have here. And I, I really like that phrase, misplaced accountability. Um, I'm going to steal it if that's okay. But um, <laughs> Sure. Yeah, no, no, that idea I think is really important of there not being any democratic accountability um, to kind of push the government to review public health decisions. Um, and instead, it is a, a sort of loyalty test to Beijing. And I presume that this is <laughs> unlikely to change under a, a new chief executive um, with Carrie Lam announcing today that she won't be running uh, for another term. Uh, and just last sort of thing on, on COVID in Hong Kong, I guess, uh, do you think Hong Kong is likely to, to stick to this dynamic COVID zero strategy, you know, with, with countries like Singapore, maybe relaxing travel rules? Or, or do you think this is likely to be entirely dictated by Beijing? Yeah, this is not a satisfying answer, but it's so hard to tell. I was just thinking about whether with the outbreak in, in China now, that will likely be quite hard to bring back down to zero you know, if that's the case, if there's a raging uh, outbreak on the other side of the Hong Kong border, then what is in it for Hong Kong to get cases down to zero if the initial impetus was to um, open the border with mainland China? And for both places, uh, both Hong Kong and mainland China, have zero cases. If um, no one has zero cases, then, uh, you know, what's the point of sticking with COVID zero? Of course, it seems like from messaging, uh, from Beijing that there is still very much um, this adherence to COVID zero and there's no wavering and and that uh, Beijing will have to chart its own way out of it. So I, I suppose Hong Kong will just have to follow suit. And I suppose we'll see as um, public health 
uh, measures and restrictions are slowly lifted later this month, whether we'll see a resurgence in cases. And I'm sure if we do, then I think the Hong Kong government will have no choice but to clamp down hard again. And in the meantime, we'll probably see, yeah, more people um, working remotely if, if they can from elsewhere, say in Singapore for the time being, and then come back maybe when things are a little clearer and less uncertain. Yeah, no, I fully agree. All the, the rhetoric from Beijing seems to be around sort of doubling down um, on this zero COVID approach for now. So to, to stick on the idea of sort of loyalty to, to Beijing and um, government accountability in Hong Kong, it brings us nicely into talking about the national security law, which has already come up in, in conversation. And I, I guess most of our listeners will be familiar with this, this wide-ranging security law introduced in, in 2020 um, in response to, to protests over an extradition law, which sort of evolved into a broader anti-China pro-democracy movement. And the NSL makes it easier to sort of punish protesters and I guess reduces the, the city's autonomy most would sort of agree upon. Um, and looking at it from a sort of, from your perspective, how, how do you feel the city has, has changed since perhaps it was last open to the world. I guess many listeners maybe won't have seen Hong Kong since COVID first broke out. Right. Um, yeah, it was only several months after COVID first broke out, and I guess early 2020, um, that we had the national security law um, officially imposed um, at the end of June of 2020. And since then, things have changed a lot. And it is almost hard to keep track of it daily, both in terms of the volume of changes that come through and how, you know, just on a mental level, how tiring it is to keep track. For much of 2020 and most of 2021, I was trying to go through this exercise of just every day making a list of and linking to news articles or um, other kind of updates of how exactly small incremental changes have happened in Hong Kong that are kind of reflective of the new national security reality that we live in now. And eventually I kind of, that exercise dropped off um, because there was just so much of it. And I kind of, got the point that actually, you know, this is going to be the thing that's going to um, carry on for, um, you know, the foreseeable future. So, so to, I guess, to give people an idea of what that means, I suppose, you know, you have visual cues around the city, you see more uh, proliferation, more Chinese flags, um, more flag raising ceremonies at school. So these kind of uh, explicit ways of, of cultivating a sense of patriotism and loyalty, of course, the Hong Kong insignia was um, replaced with the PRC emblem in the legislature, so that's quite symbolic. Um, you've had, for example, sculptures dismantled in the middle of the night, um, the pillar of shame at HKU, um, that's commemoration of uh, the Tiananmen massacre, that was taken away and dismantled. You've had uh, this one particular kind of ch large Chinese character slogan that's painted on um, um, on the on the sidewalk in the middle of um, uh, the campus of uh, University of Hong Kong that's been painted over actually completely kind of tipexed over so you just have all these examples of small changes day to day that if you kind of don't pay attention to that to it um, on the day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week level you may almost completely miss it and feel like you're living in a Hong Kong that hasn't changed so much in the sense that things still look the same but of course there are these small details where people are more careful with what they say or what they do, and they're thinking a little bit more about whether um, their actions and, and speech, both online and offline, may eventually land them in kind of hot water with the national security law or the crimes ordinance under, uh, for you know the crime of sedition, for example. So yeah, it's it's hard to I suppose paint a comprehensive picture, but I hope that 
gives listeners a sense of it. No, I, I think that's super useful. We tend to only hear, I think, about some of the, the big ticket changes. So that, that aspect of a, a more gradual erosion of, of freedoms is, is really important um, to, to hear about, I think. <laughs> I completely sympathize with, with you sort of making that list of the, the, the different crackdowns. We tried to do the same for mm. a, a report last September. <laughs> I think we got about two months in and there were just so many, it became um, became exhausting. And one of the things I'm, I'm sort of keen to, to push back on are, are the less kind of tangible impacts of the, the NSL, I guess. Have you observed a, a self-censorship effect in the city? Uh, that's the sort of, in my eyes, at least the ideal outcome for Beijing in, in many ways in when it sort of doesn't have to, to enforce the law and sort of generate bad press around the world, although they have been in, inclined to, to do this too. But, but have you sort of seen people being a, a bit more cautious about what they, they can and can't say? Mm, yeah, you definitely see it or hear about it. Um, and of course, the, the I suppose the irony or the paradox with self-censorship is that it rarely rises to the level of being a headline item because the very nature of self-censorship is that you're just policing your own speech. And so it doesn't kind of become a big news item unless it has to do with a major organization, for example, or I don't know, a, a some egregious or explicit um, censorship of the book or publication or something that wouldn't otherwise have been. But to give you an example, um, I suppose academics, um, say teaching classes and in uh, universities and colleges, they have to grapple with this, especially because so many classes are now online. And so you have uh, teaching material being recorded and um, possibly uploaded onto portals. And so you, I'm sure it's, um, you know academics are being quite careful if you're, say, teaching about anything that is in the vicinity of national security issues, or if you're teaching about the, say, the history of sedition and um, laws dealing with sedition, not only in Hong Kong, but around the world, how do you talk about those issues? Um, how do you talk about, um, you know, uh, battles and fights for independence um, around the world in different political jurisdictions and, and, um, and regions? How do, you, how do you talk about all of that without maybe having a you know, for fear of having a student report you for saying something uh, politically incorrect so i think at that level um just those small considerations of how you phrase a certain question or how you write your syllabus or how you design a class discussion you, you probably see um at that level there's probably a good amount of self-censorship and of course there were also things like photo exhibitions or film screenings where these considerations will come into play but probably won't rise to the level of actually making the news and so we rarely hear about it um especially for people who are outside of hong kong who are not seeing it on the day-to-day -day level Right. It is that sort of chilling effect. And it's completely understandable why people are, are much more wary. And do you feel Hong Kong's reputation as sort of one of the world's most connected international cities has been eroded already? I think it was reported that nearly half of foreign businesses in Hong Kong are planning to relocate. Obviously, a lot of that is, is due to COVID. Um, but, but do you think this might become a sort of permanent trend because of both the, the dynamic zero COVID strategy and the, the national security law causing the sort of demise of, of key features that, that made the, the city such an attractive commercial hub, such as its respected legal system? Or, or do you think Hong Kong is still likely to remain um, attractive due to sort of uh, a lot of the, the, the features that, that made it attractive before and still exist and also that proximity to the vast market of the, the mainland? We've definitely seen an outflow um, um, of both uh, companies and, and people. Um, just anecdotally, I've had 
lot of friends either leave for good or pack up and head over to Singapore just to work for a few months um, and to wait out this kind of uncertainty right now. As to whether people will come back um, after borders are reopened, I think that remains to be seen. So it's hard to um, say uh, with any certainty right now what that would look like and whether companies will still want a base here. But I think if we look at the number of the, the makeup of um, foreign companies that have offices, uh, regional offices or foreign offices in Hong Kong, um, the growth of Chinese companies with offices here has far outstripped um, the growth of, say, UK or US or Japanese companies. And so it seems to me like the bulk of foreign offices are still made up um, by, say, Japan, US and UK and, and other countries. But Chinese companies are definitely growing in their presence here. And I do wonder whether the Hong Kong government will care so much if companies decide to move their headquarters elsewhere. Um, of course, it, will, it means that Hong Kong being a hub and uh, the financial center may take a hit. But it, for now, um, I think Hong Kong still plays a really, really key role, um, especially for Chinese enterprises um, that are raising overseas capital and also just for kind of China's overall goal of internationalizing the um, their NMB, I think Hong Kong still there plays a really key role. So we'll definitely see at least Chinese companies still wanting to um, set up shop here. And as you say, with the 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 attraction of a huge market of China, I think we will see um, foreign companies still with a presence here as to whether there will be a massive exodus. I think um, we haven't seen that since the beginning of um, this national security law era. Um, and it doesn't seem like we are about to see anytime soon, but I may be completely wrong. Yeah, no, that, that feels um, a pretty good guess, to be honest, pretty informed guess. Um, and to put yourself in, in Beijing shoes um, once again, perhaps unfairly um, me asking you to do this, but what, what do you see as Beijing's end game for this city? Do, do you see it as a sort of managed structural decline at a kind of merging with mainland China? I think uh, Dan Wang in his end of year letter said that Beijing is is treating Hong Kong, I think, something like an, an ulcer, a, you know, a problem mm. to sort of manage away um, with hopefully not too much more pain. Um, I, I found this characterization personally quite sad, having you know not been to the, the city since the protests in 2019. But is this sort of how it feels as Beijing develops this, this greater Bay Area and making Shenzhen and surrounding territories more attractive for the, I guess, the more young, innovative, entrepreneurial types? That also image is definitely very evocative. Um, I think that's there's definitely truth to that. I think Beijing really wants to keep Hong Kong um, as a really important um, offshore financial market so that they can internationalize the renminbi um, and, and, and help Beijing with that goal or Hong Kong help Beijing with that goal. Both of those things can be true. Um, both Hong Kong being this annoying pebble in, in, in someone's shoe, right? Uh, you have this little city of 7 million people, but grabbing headlines and causing political upheaval and at the same time wanting to keep the, the benefits that Hong Kong offers, which is a way for China to somewhat, I suppose, kind of sandbox um, Hong Kong's financial system by using it to internationalize the RMB, but also keep the... Um, uh, without fully opening China's um, financial system, I think it kind of offers Beijing the best of both worlds in that regard. And what do you think the UK and, and other liberal democracies, or perhaps I should say foreign forces, um, could do at this <laughs> point to, to sort of support Hong Kong? Um, I also find this kind of fate a complete shrug of the shoulders mentality that I, I see creeping in here a bit demoralizing, actually. So, so what do you think policymakers can do? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, what what does Hong Kong mean now? What are the stakes from the perspective of policymakers, not just day to day lives of of Hong Kongers, but policymakers who are making decisions in the halls of power? I think, um, of course, from from the UK, there's been the BNO scheme, which has been one of the most significant policy actions taken. As to what else, I suppose you probably know better than I do in terms of you know what policy options there are out there. Um, of course, sanctions have been levied against some um, officials in Hong Kong. I, I do wonder uh, what effect those have had other than, for example, Carrie Lam apparently needing to be paid in cash and her having to keep stacks and stacks of bills at home. Must, uh, what a pity that true. was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't really have a good answer to the policy question, to be honest. Um, I'm curious what you think. Yeah, I, I do think that the UK BNO scheme, which you've mentioned, I, w- I want to press you on sort of next, but I think that's a start and it's now pushing other countries to offer similar lifeboat schemes and also on this end, making sure that BNO arrivals are um, assimilated into the UK. So stick on the, the BNO scheme, um, which just to sort of clear up for listeners, the, the UK launched this bespoke pathway to to citizenship for um, British national overseas status holders and their, their family members last year. I think we've seen over 100,000 arrivals um, already in the, in the first year and maybe as many as sort of 350,000 over the next five years. Um, and it could could sort of be a, an even more since they've extended the scheme to those born after 1997. F- from your experience in Hong Kong and, and chatting to people, how has the, the BNO scheme been received and what more could we sort of do um, in the UK to, to help Hong Kongers settle in over here? Well, I think... The general question of leaving Hong Kong and, and emigration is definitely quite top of mind for a lot of people. Um, it's hard to have a conversation, say, with a friend of yours who you may not have seen in a while and catch up with them and, and have the conversation not go to the question of do you have plans to leave Hong Kong or what what's the game plan now? Are you going to stay here for another two to three years? Is it three to five years? And, um, you know, just anecdotally. Um, I see people revising down their estimates for how long they'll be staying in Hong Kong um, um, with quite high frequency. So definitely, I think, especially, say, for people with young kids who may not want um, their children to be going through a completely revamped education system where there will be much more censorship, where this nationalism, patriotism in, um, in uh, on the terms of Beijing will be much more part and parcel with the education experience and of course not wanting your kids to learn this self-censorship um, um not not have self-censorship become second nature to them i think a lot of uh yeah uh, young professionals who have young kids are definitely thinking about that and of course yeah uh it really is quite a kind of a large uh, cross-section of I think, the population that will be looking to uh, head elsewhere whether that be the uk or canada australia the u.s yeah, and I think I would just add on this end that Hong Kong is, and the BNO scheme as a whole have been really well received and it's been a sort of very positive policy since it was introduced last year. And, and just to finish, Mary, by making a sort of hard steer away from the, the incredibly heavy um, topic of, of Hong Kong and in your role as a journalist, you, you cover a range of, of issues um, pertaining to global politics, um, economy and sort of tech. And just to sort of let listeners know, um, what, what are you currently looking at? And we can point them in the direction of your, your fantastic reporting. Oh, well, thank you. Um, so I guess, yeah, by way of um, getting that question, one thing that I've been thinking about is how 
Hong Kong is, of course, just one aspect of China's broader geostrategic ambition of, you know, of course, bringing about the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, that phrase that we're all quite familiar with now. And of course, as you would know very well yourself, um, that plays out, that geostrategic ambition of Hong Kong, uh, of Beijing, sorry, plays out across a lot of different realms of Hong Kong being just one of them in terms of increasing political power and control. But of course, you have um, increasing influence and leverage over supply chains, for example, or territorial claims and cyberspace. So I've been trying to approach, I suppose, my reporting by looking at those various those various areas. And in a sense, I think Hong Kong is a showcase for how um, China is adept at using existing institutions or, or frameworks and rules to further its own aims and to align them with um, the CCP's values and, and preferences. So for example, you know, by using Hong Kong's tradition of its robust and independent judiciary um, under the common law system, they've actually, in a sense, that existing system has helped Beijing in its in its crackdown by first giving it a veneer of legitimacy and credibility, but also having a, a structure through which they can push these cases through the system. And so, you know, Beijing, of course, talks a lot about in their policy documents, say, 14 five-year plans and, and the various sectoral plans um, for different industries. They talk about using the UN and other multilateral organizations to really cement China's influence. And I think that kind of playbook we've also seen um, in Hong Kong in, this, in the sense that they've used these existing institutions. So I'm, I guess I'm trying to, yeah, look at these different ways um, that Beijing is trying to um, um, achieve its aims, um, whether that's in Hong Kong um, to increase its political control or say supply chains uh, with I suppose uh, rare earths being one very unrelated to Hong Kong topic that I've been uh, spending a good amount of time on and, and other realms as well. Yeah, I'm very glad you um, mentioned rare earths. That's obviously one of our favorite topics at the, the China Research Group uh, and also how we actually sort of first got in touch. You've written at length about China's quest for resources overseas to sort of cement its dominance in these um, supply chains that will, will shape future economic growth and security. Um, and as you mentioned, with, with regards to Hong Kong, the, the kind of rare earth thing we feel is really encapsulates a, a lot of the debates here about responding to, to China's industrial policy um, and the quest to sort of reduce strategic dependency on authoritarian countries, uh, which of course has come into to sharp focus um, over the last couple of months with the, the tragic events in Ukraine. And yeah, Mary, you, you have an in-depth understanding of the sort of supply chain eco ecosystem um, and you speak to some really great people. Uh, so I would recommend listeners check out your work. Um, and just to round off, where should we sort of direct people to, to stay on top of your fantastic reporting and other sort of general observations on Hong Kong and elsewhere? Mm, um, Twitter is a great place to go. Um, my handle is at Mary Hoy, M-A-R-Y-H-U-I. And um, my author page to quotes will be linked there as well. So Twitter is a good um, one-stop shop to go to. Brilliant. I will include a, a link to your Twitter in the, the podcast notes. Uh, Mary Hoy, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to chat with the China Research Group today. Uh, have a lovely evening and stay safe. Thank you very much for having me, Chris. It's great to chat.